The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. It can be found on page 926 in the Black Bibles. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the, middle, in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading for us, Brandon, and thank you all for being here with us. Uh, my name is John Trapp. I'm the um, senior pastor here at Christ King. It is a joy to have all of you here today. I want to particularly welcome any visitors who are among us. Uh, we want you to know that at this church, we really believe that we all have a great need for a Savior. All of us show up here in great dire need for a savior, but we also believe that the Bible tells us that there is a great savior for our need. And so every week when we come to the Lord's word and study his scriptures, we are looking to see once again how he demonstrates to us um, that he is willing to be our great savior. So uh, wherever you find yourself spiritually today, maybe you're, maybe you're cynical, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you don't believe, maybe you're tired, 
Um, maybe you're looking to be encouraged and reminded of the gospel. Wherever you are, um, you're welcome because you are a person just like all of us uh, who has a great need for a Savior. So let's come to him now and ask him to help us uh, as we study his word together. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that we could join now um, around your word, and we pray that you would help us to sit under it, um, to learn from you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us more, um, even now, uh, your, uh, your willingness to love and care for sinners uh, like us who need it. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my sermon title for you today is um, The One True God. And if you're a note taker, you're not going to be shocked. There's three points to this sermon. The One True God. The first point is what we worship. The second is who to worship. And then third, why worship him. So what we worship, who to worship, and why worship him. And this, this is really a passage that's all about worship as Paul shows up in Athens. He goes to Athens and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him on his missionary journey. They were separated in Thessalonica and now Paul is waiting for them to join him. And while he's waiting, he does what most of us would do if we were in Athens. He goes sightseeing to check out this amazing historic city. And as he does that, in verse 16, we see that he's bothered. In fact, it says Paul's provoked while he is doing this sightseeing because what he sees is a city that is full of idols. It's full of the worship of idols. Uh, A Greek satirist uh, said when talking about Athens that Athens had more idols than men in the city. Or in in verse 16, when it describes that the city is full of idols, it uses this Greek uh, word kata idolos, which means um, under idols or like submerged by idols. They were drowning in idols in Athens. Everywhere you would look, you would see idols. Even if you were 40 miles away, you could look at the Parthenon and see the glowing uh, golden spear tip of Athena in the Parthenon from 40 miles away, it was said. This was a city that was submerged in idols, drowning in them. And Paul sees it and he's bothered by it. He's provoked by it. And so in verse 17, it says he begins reasoning with Jews and with the religious devout people in that area. But also he doesn't stop there. He, he keeps talking and he meets the philosophers of that day in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they hear him talking and they say, you need to come and talk in, in the Areopagus, which was kind of there, um, the forum for where new ideas were brought and, and considered. It, it would have been um, a center of, of learning, a place, it, it'd be like being brought to, to Princeton or Oxford or like College Station, some great center of learning, I don't know. Um, yeah, laugh at that. Okay, but the, uh, when Paul's brought there, what he begins to talk about is he starts talking about what we worship and what they're worshiping. And he does that because, because he's seen what this city is. And y'all, this is who we are too. We are worshipers. John, John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. That even if there's not a, um, you know, maybe some carved image that you're kneeling to in your, I know, maybe a little shrine that you have in your home, whether or not you have that, you are an idol worshiper. If you don't want to take it from John Calvin, how about Bob Dylan? In one of his songs, Bob Dylan says, you may be a construction worker working on a home, you may be living in a mansion, or you might live in a dome. You might own guns, and you might even own tanks. 
You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Actually, he says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. (laughs) And the reality is, in America, you know, you maybe look around and you say, well, actually, America is less Christian than it's ever been. The, the Western world is becoming more and more secular, and, and that is true. And yet, in spite of, even, even in a city like Houston, which, by the way, in the last 14 years, the people living in Houston who say they have no religious affiliation has risen from 8% to 20% in 14 years in our city. So in, in, a, in a world and even in a city that's becoming more secular, the, we find that the religious impulse is easier to rebrand than to extinguish. The religious impulse is easier to rebrand than to extinguish. And where I got that phrase is from a book called Seculosity by an author named David Zoll. And, and What Zoll argues is that even though our world has become more secular in the West, it has not ceased to be extremely religious, to have a religiosity about it, but it's a secular religiosity. So his book is titled Seculosity. And he talks about this word um, that we have replaced with the word righteous. Instead of using the word righteous, because that's such an old religious sounding word, we talk about being enough. But that's kind of our new version of righteousness, being and feeling like we're enough. Listen to how he describes it. Listen carefully, and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. And friends, anything that we look to that would make us feel or experience being enough, anything that we would look to is an idol. It is an idol. It's an, and, and what idols do, we think that idols will serve us by making us feel like we're enough, but what ends up happening is that we become our idols' servants and we never quite feel enough. Uh, one of you told me a story about an investment group that you knew about in New York City, and this investment group loved to have salesmen come to their office because then the salesman would take them out to eat, nice meals, restaurants. And there was a salesman named Richard who came to this office quite frequently and Richard really wanted to, um, to get a sale with this investment group and they would always let Richard take them to buy them cocktails and bottles of wine and champagne even and you know prime cut ribeyes and all, and all kinds of great meals. And they, never, they, they knew they were never going to you know, give Richard any of their business, but they, he could wine them and dine them as much as he wanted. Uh, some of you are having PTSD about your jobs right now, I'm sorry. But the, finally, um, Richard asks them to, to come to a meal. They hadn't heard from him in a while. They were really excited heard from Richard again. So they go to best restaurant in, um, in their area. They order all kinds of bottles and have cocktails and have a great night. Um, they have you know, five-course meal. 
and um, kind of late into the evening before the, the waiter comes with the bill, Richard excuses himself, needs um, to step out for a bit, and then they wait, and Richard doesn't show up. And one of them says, I'll go check and see if he's in the bathroom. Maybe, maybe, he's in, maybe we should check on him. They go, Richard's not in the bathroom. Richard's gone. And so now the bill's at the table, and they're looking around, and this is a big bill that they hadn't planned on paying, but they've got to pay it. They pay the bill. And uh, they have no idea where Richard's gone. They are calling him. He's not answering his phone. A couple weeks go by. He's still not responding to them. So one of them reaches out to his boss kind of under the false pretense of, hey, can I just check in on Richard? Is he okay? Also, there's this bill situation. And the boss is like, oh, I I fired Richard six months ago. (laughs) Yeah. Richard's the patron saint of salesmen, right? Like, Richard... Richard knew, he knew that they would come and eat with him and that he could leave them holding the bill. And y'all, that is exactly what our idols do to us. Our idols promise blessing and they leave us holding the bill. They promise to serve us and they end up making us their servants. And our culture is filled with idols. It's like what Paul says in verse 22 to the Areopagus, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That is true about us. In every way we are very religious. You know one place that we're religious? Our food. I think, I think every single one of us has a complicated relationship with food. Probably more complicated than we'd like to admit to ourselves. Uh, there is a rising tide in our country of an eating disorder that is fairly new. It's been termed orthorexia nervosa, which literally means a fixation on righteous eating. How religious does that sound, right? A fixation on righteous eating. And I want you to listen to, this is the National Eating Disorder Association's description. Listen to how religious this sounds. And I'm not trying to be funny here. Like, this is... This is how we are with our food, so many of us. Orthorexia starts out as an innocent attempt to eat more healthfully, but orthorexics become fixated on food quality and purity. There's a religious word for you, purity. Every day is a chance to eat right. You could say righteously. Every day is a chance to be good, to rise above others in dietary prowess and self-punish if temptation wins, usually through stricter eating, fasts, and exercise. That sounds like penance, which is also a religious practice in some religions. Self-esteem becomes wrapped up in the purity of the orthorexic's diet, and they sometimes feel superior to others, especially in regard to food intake. So food, which is meant to be a blessing to enjoy, becomes instead a measuring stick with which we obsess about and that never actually provides you with the stability or the security that you're looking for, no matter how righteously you eat. Our idols, like food, are good things that we make into ultimate things. That's what an idol is, a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong inherently with 
food. There's nothing wrong inherently with alcohol or with money or work or sex or social connections. There's nothing wrong inherently with any of those things. But what we do is we take those good things that God has given us and we make them into ultimate things. And all of those things I just listed are horrible ultimate things. They're ultimate things that if, you, if, you, if they're good things, that if you make them ultimate things, they become tyrants. They become tyrants that you always have to serve. And I want you to think about this. What do those tyrants do when you fail them? What does your idol do to you when you fail it? It punishes you. If, you're, if your idol is the way that you eat and you mess up on that, how do you feel the next day? How, what, it, what is your idol dealing to you? Shame. It's, it's making, it's, you're, you're holding the bill, aren't you? Or, or if your idol is your work and you just bomb that presentation, you just bomb it. What's your idol telling you as you drive home? It is not gracious, is it? Because our idols punish us when we fail them. Another idol that we have in our culture is performance. In his book, Zal calls it performancism, where your resume isn't part of your identity, it is your identity. Where your academic, your social, your athletic performance, all of it is wrapped up in your identity. And friends, there's actually been an observation made um, in areas, particularly in affluent areas of the United States, in a study that was done on areas like Palo Alto, Northern Virginia, Western Chicago, these affluent areas where academic, social, athletic performance is so highly regarded and measured, sociologists have observed what they call suicide clusters in high school students, where high school students have a suicide rate that is four to five times the national average in those clusters of places where performance is so intensely and highly required. The University of Pennsylvania following a 13-month stretch where six of their students at their Ivy League school committed suicide formed a university ta task force on mental health. And this university task force report cited something that they called pen face. University of Pennsylvania pen, P-N-N face, which it defined as the practice of acting happy and self-assured even when sad or stressed face. Our idol of performance tells us that we have to put on some kind of face, that we can't let anyone know that we're struggling or having difficulty. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't stop and at least just say that if you, if you are struggling with suicidal ideation, do not struggle alone. Please don't struggle alone. Because Fixing yourself or achieving a certain level of whatever performance that you're aiming at, that is, that is a ruthless tyrant that, that doesn't fix everything, that's not secure. Instead, what I, what I would invite you to do and actually plead for you to do is to tell somebody, to talk to somebody who you trust and share with them your struggles 
If you're a kid, talk to an adult about it. Talk to a parent, talk to a youth pastor, a youth worker, someone in our church, to a friend, to a parent. Don't be alone in it. Y'all, what about the idol of technology? I think for many of us, the same whisper that the serpent has for Eve in the garden is the same whisper that we hear from our technology. Remember, remember what the serpent tells Eve? He says, God knows that if you eat of the tree, that you will become like him. There's this temptation that our technology, I believe, holds out to us. That if you eat of this fruit, you'll become like God. And I ain't trying to over-spiritualize anything, but like my phone does have a picture of an apple with a bite out of it in it, all right? So, think about... Think about what our technology tells us about how we can become like God. You can become omnipresent. God is omnipresent. That means that he's everywhere at one time. He's, he's present everywhere. Our, our phones tell us we can be omnipresent. We can be checking out the score of the basketball game and responding to an email from our boss and sitting at the dinner table all at once while maybe like a Zoom call is happening with grandma in the corner. Like we can, we think that our technology can, can help us become omnipresent, but does it not just make us like more fractured <laughs> or omniscient? We can become all-knowing. We can find out about the latest news of what's happening in Ukraine. We can watch every single angle of the Will Smith slap and learn all the backstory of like the Chris Rock relationship. We can have access to the best self-help gurus on the internet with all kinds of practices and tips and life hacks for being a better person. And there's all of this information that we have that can whisper to us, you can be all-knowing. You just need to know a little bit more here. Or omnipotence, all-powerful. Listen, never before in the history of humanity could someone sit on their couch in their sweatpants and have a bottle of wine, a pint of small batch ice cream, and handmade pasta delivered to them at their doorstep in less than an hour. Until now. That is crazy. And that is a whisper of omnipotence. That without lifting a finger, I, <laughs> I can have everything, anything that I want brought to me, a products that took thousands of years of culture and agriculture and culinary development to be produced, but it can be brought to me by my Uber Eats driver in less than an hour, and I can have it like that. Our technology whispers to us that we can be all-powerful, and yet it's statistically proven that we are more sad than we've ever been. Things feel heavier than they ever have. We are more tired than we've ever been, and our lives feel more frantic than ever. We are left holding the bill. In um, the documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which it's not G-rated, but if you have, if you have a, a high school kid or a middle school kid, or uh, if you're an adult, I, I really I suggest that you watch it at some point and educate yourself on, on what our technology is doing to us. But um, Tristan Harris is a, a former design ethicist at Google. Uh, this is what he says about our technology. So this is someone who's been in Silicon Valley for decades. He says, we're training and conditioning a whole new generation of people that when we are uncomfortable or lonely or uncertain or afraid, we have a digital pacifier 
for ourselves that is atrophying our own ability to deal with our emotions. You see how we're left holding the bill? So what's your idol? What's the thing that you're looking to to give you life that's, that's, that's your hope? Now, someone told me this has been really helpful for me. If you want to know what your idol is, think how you would fill in the blank to this sentence. Maybe you're putting your head down on your pillow. It's the end of the day. When blank has gone well, it's been a good day. And when blank has gone poorly, it's been a bad day. What is it that is defining you and defining your days? And when it goes poorly, you feel ruined. And when it goes well, you feel elated. And so you're tossed about by this thing. That is an idol. That is your idol. And Paul's message to people like us and to a culture like ours that is drowning in idols is he draws attention to a very different kind of God to worship. Second point. My next two points are much faster. Don't worry. Second point. He draws their attention on who to worship. Who to worship. And we see this in this address he, he, does in, he has in the Areopagus. This is, it's interesting. This is a third of Paul's extended speeches that we see in um, the book of Acts. And in Acts 13, he talks to a bunch of religious people, Jews and God-fearers. In Acts 14, he talks to a bunch of illiterate pagans. And now he's in like the center of learning and culture and he's talking to a bunch of philosophers, which I think is just another beautiful reminder that the gospel is for everybody. But because he's talking to philosophers and to this educated class of people, he, begins, he meets them where they are at. And he begins boring into the true, one true God because he, he knows what we all kind of intrinsically know. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I, I, was, I used to be a campus minister at the University of Texas. One day I was walking on the 40 acres and these two girls were walking past me. And I just, you know how you can kind of barely overhear somebody's conversation as they're walking past. And at, they're talking as they walk past. I hear one of them say to the other, aren't we all kind of still secretly a little bit in love with our ex? like our ex-boyfriend, aren't we all still kind of a little bit in love with our ex? And the girl next to her goes, oh, me for sure. And then they're gone. <laughs> they passed by. I was like, well, that was actually very philosophical. There, there's an old Puritan named Thomas Chalmers who wrote a paper on that kind of idea called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In other words, the way that our hearts are moved from one old affection to a new one is to replace that old affection with a better one. And as we think about worship, which literally in that word, it, it, the word comes from the combination of worth and ship. There's a value. Like where, where do our hearts find value? What Paul begins doing is he begins demonstrating to the Athenians that there is a way better God. You're worshiping all of this like pantheon of gods and they're all your own little human inventions. There is a way better, bigger God. And so Paul draws their attention to the one true God. 
And he uses, he uses their culture and their context to kind of like find common ground with them and then begin to show them that. So look at verse 23. He spies this altar to the unknown God. They, they have so many gods, they've even made a God to, well, you know, well, there's probably some more out there, unknown God. Boom, let's put that one there too. And Paul says, listen, I know who that is. And I want to tell you about him. The unknown God I am going to make known to you. And then verse 24, he begins, he begins expanding their horizons of exactly who this God is and how great he is. He says, he is the Lord, the King of heaven and earth. He establishes that the God of the Bible is over the, their entire pantheon of gods. He's bigger and better. He made all of heaven and earth. And then verse 25, all life is from him. Everything that sustains life is from him. He begins borrowing from their poetry, from Greek poetry. He's, he's pulling all these different threads to say, listen, you're bumping up against it over and over and over again. In him we live and move and have our being. We indeed are his offspring. Those are, that, this, that's Greek poetry from the 6th century and then from the 3rd century. Paul's pulling in all of their media, all of their world, even their own idol for or their own altar to an unknown God. And he's saying, listen, there is one who sustains your life, who is bigger and better. I, I think Paul would have been tempted to show, I want to show you all something, okay? This is a slide. All right, look at that. Now, when you look at that, it looks like maybe a Google, I thought it was a Google Earth picture of like an amusement park or something, or maybe like India during like Diwali with like all the color and stuff. That, that is... According to Stanford University, currently the most accurate model of a human cell that we have. When Paul begins talking about in him we live and move and have our being, that he is the author of life, y'all, that, the God who made that, which sustains us and holds us together, that model which was put together by like, Harvard and Stanford medical scientists. That's what makes you up. Isn't that crazy? The detail, the beauty. Paul is zooming out the lens for them and saying there is a God who is so much bigger and so much better. And he invites you into a relationship with him. But y'all, there is a danger of a God that you didn't make. It's dangerous to have a God you didn't make. A God that you make, you can control, you can figure out how tall he is, you know, if he's got a little chubby belly, or if you make him out of copper or wood or brass. You can control a God of your own making. I think it's one of the reasons even why atheism is appealing. If there is no God, you don't answer to anyone. But if God does exist, then we have to bend our knee to him. We have to humble ourselves before him. And so Paul, Paul is saying, be reasonable. Be reasonable. The God who made heaven and earth wasn't made by you. How could he be made by you? He made you. He's the one who's the maker, not you. You're not the creator. He is. So why worship him? Final point, why worship him? Well, Paul's pretty direct on this one. Verse 31, 
Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Um, yeah, you could say that's direct. Bend your knee because there is a day, and it's already been appointed. The day's been, been chosen. Imagine, you know, you get like a letter in the mail, you've got a court, a court date, and there, if you saw a date on that letter, you'd be like, okay, this thing is happening. He's saying there is a date, and also there's already been a judge assigned to that date. It is happening. The date is coming. But then he says, the next thing that he says is what causes them to begin mocking him because they just can't get their mind around this, that this judge, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There, this judge that will judge all of the earth is a resurrected judge. He's a judge who died. A campus minister of mine, a campus minister friend of mine um, told me, about one of his old students um, who, after she graduated, uh, she decided to go be a special ed teacher in the Mississippi Delta. And uh, she'd been working in the Delta for a couple of years. He, um, she was back in town. He got coffee with her, was hearing how it was going. And he noticed that she had bruises up and down her arms. He asked her, he asked her about the bruises on her arms, and she said, oh, that's actually from one of my students. Um, he gets physically violent pretty frequently in class and I have to restrain him um, from hurting other children, from hurting himself. And my buddy was like, well, are you okay? What is, what is that like? And she got a big smile on her face. And she said, I'm actually so thankful. I'm so thankful for these bruises because when I meet with his parents, they see the bruises and they know that I get it. And they can hear me in a different way because I have the same bruises on my arm that they do. They get it. They, and they know that I get it. Why bend your knee to a judge? A judge who's died and risen again. Because the reason that he died is to save idolaters who've rejected him, who've turned their back on him, who scriptures say we hated him. And while we were still enemies, Christ Jesus died for us to reconcile us to himself, not by what we do, but because he pays the bill. He's paid the bill. He is the only one that you can worship that when you fail him, he doesn't punish you because he's paid for the punishment on the cross by his very life and death. And he's resurrected, and so that means the payment is finished. In fact, those are his dying words, they're finished. He doesn't leave you to pay the bill. Instead, when you fail him, he extends grace to you. That is a judge worth bending your knee to. That's why you worship him. Because all of these gods that the Athenians had did not offer a crumb of grace. And Jesus offers a banquet. He offers a banquet of grace to sinners. And I really believe there's a day coming 
where we'll look face to face and we'll see the bruises. And like, like Jesus showed Doubting Thomas his own wounds and welcomed him to see his bruises because he wanted Thomas to know that I get it. In the new heavens and new earth, Jesus in his resurrected body will still bear the scars that he paid, that he paid for our very lives. And I think that we'll touch them. We'll see them. We will be revealed more deeply than ever before just how loved we are in Christ, who is our judge, who has also gone before us so that we may not fall under his wrath. Do you know him? Are you looking to other idols to find your comfort, to find your salvation? They're not gonna show you grace, but Jesus will. Come to him for the first time or be reminded today if you've come to him before that he is for you. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would make, um, make some of us even in this room for the first time like you did Dionysius the Areopagite or Damaris um, who heard about a better God um, and came to you. Lord, I pray that um, if there are any among us now who don't yet know you, um, that they might see that you are, you are a God who's worthy of their worship and devotion because of your devotion um, to sinners like us. And I pray that you would call them to yourselves. Um, and I pray that, ask, I ask now that we would enjoy um, celebrating this feast of your grace together. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.